Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that gives you a peek inside the minds of some truly inspirational teachers. For this episode, the finale of season three, we have a very special set of guests. We have Berkeley Everett, a maths expert from California, and Steph Elliott, a teacher, book blogger from Newcastle upon Tyne. And together we're going to sit down and we're going to talk about all things primary or elementary mathematics. Now, this conversation was so much fun from start to finish. And I know that you're going to love every second because we're going to see what two people on completely different sides of the world have to think about maths education and what we can learn from each other, even though we work in entirely different systems. So for the final time this season, let's spend some time thinking deeply about primary education. Berkeley and Steph, it's, it's lovely to have you here. Thank you very much for joining me. Oh, so wonderful to be here. Thanks for having us. I know, it's, it's an honor to be here. Anyone who's familiar with the podcast and the format will know that we sort of start with our guests in numbers to get a feel for who they are, what they're about. So my first question to you is years as a teacher. So I'm going into my fourth year of teaching. And for me, it's 10 years, if we're talking about math and, and teacher education in the normal realm but 15 if we include uh, music first year group taught yeah five so nine and ten year olds and i appreciate you telling me the ages for me it was uh 11 to 12 year olds last year group taught yeah six so 10 and 11 year olds and for me six year olds most important year group i'm gonna let berkeley go so that i can kind of formulate an answer in my head and for me, it was the, the six-year-olds. And I think for me, it was that. That was the year that I realized that math was uh, more complicated uh, than, than I thought it was and to teach something as simple as five plus two equals seven. Yeah, I think the hardest jump to make is from year two to year three. I think there's a lot more complex expected of them in year three than there is in year two. Yeah, I, to- I totally get where we're both coming from. What about your favorite year group? I really like teaching up at Key Stage 2, so that's like the nine-year-olds to the 11-year-olds, because you can have a bit of crack with them, you can have a bit of a joke on, they've formulated their personalities, Um, they're independent enough to do something by themselves, but they're not so independent that they just don't need any help at all, and I think that is where my skill set lies with the older children. Saying that, I've never taught lower than up at Key Stage 2, so who knows? And I have to agree with Steph on that some of the most important and most difficult maths happens really early on but you get to do the really in-depth problem solving with those kids once they've got a bit of maturity and you know they're solid in their understanding of those fundamentals so I, I totally see where you're coming from what about number of tweets embarrassingly I looked this up because I didn't know please bear in mind I've been tweeting for 12 years <laughs> I joined Twitter in 2009 I've got like 140,000 tweets wow (laughs) that's amazing it's a lot of tweets you you got a couple books in there i mean if you consolidate those tweets just a few (laughs) (laughs) there's there's a maths problem how many of the previous guests would we need to add together to get to (laughs) 100 
so you're, talk about it. <laughs> you're, you're an early adopter, it seems. And I'm wondering what other social media platforms I should be on, Steph. Yeah, I, I loved Twitter. I kind of grew up online on Twitter. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's a lot of tweets. I, I understand. <laughs> well, everything is relative. I mean, 9,000 sounds like a large number, but not anymore. Uh, so I'm somewhere around 9,000 tweets. <laughs> it would have previously been a reasonably high number. <laughs> You're absolutely right. And I think Steph Shannon is sitting somewhere going, oh, I'm not, not embarrassingly the, the highest anymore. <laughs> so Berkeley, you're a teacher, K-5 mathematics coach and facilitator, mathematics consultant and mathematics visuals designer. Tell us about your journey and how you got here. Yeah, so I, uh, I majored in music in college and I had a short professional career. Um, but then I had an injury and I had to stop uh, playing and I was trying to figure out what else, what else do I love? And my time spent as a jazz pianist uh, and, and playing music uh, prepared me well for, for teaching, I think for many reasons, but I've, I've been realizing, especially a lot more recently, that the uh, sort of telling a story using the patterns of sound as a musician and trying to, you know, compel people to feel a certain way or give people a, a certain type of an experience as a musician translated very nicely to becoming a teacher. And I didn't realize it at first, uh, but over time I started realizing, and especially as I started focusing on math as a teacher, uh, there's math is, is also about telling a story. It's also about giving people an experience, uh, but instead of the patterns of sound, you're using the patterns of quantity or the patterns of measurements. And um, so I've, I've sort of tried to take uh, and apply all of the things I learned in music to math education. I'm still learning about the connection between both. Uh, but I started, uh, one of the experiences I wanted for my students was that aha moment, right? And the, the they weren't getting it uh, from my regular instruction. So I thought I, I was starting to visualize math in a new way and seeing why the place value system works the way that it does. And I was having these visuals in my head and I started creating them on the computer uh, and showing them to my students. And at first, it felt like it was going well. What I started realizing was the problem with these, these visuals was that the students who already understood were having these aha moments, but the students who were still struggling uh, didn't seem to be pushed over the edge with the visual that I had created. So I was like, what, you know, what's going on here? But in my new role uh, that, I have, that I've had for the past couple of years, I'm going into classrooms where teachers are using something called cognitively guided instruction, uh, which is some research on how kids naturally solve mathematical problems in the elementary ages. And the teachers will pose a problem uh, in context, give kids some number choices. So there's some sort of automatic differentiation and they give them a blank paper. So they're not showing them how to think, they're not showing them how to model, they're not showing them how to solve. It's all on the students and the students get to work together and then the, the teacher will select some strategies and some models that the kids came up with and they'll compare and connect those ideas as they're kind of share out at the end of the lesson to consolidate their, their learning. And they'll, they'll take what they learned that day and apply it to the problem the next day that the teacher will, will craft and pose. And what I've, what I've realized, because the kids, all the kids are having the aha moments in these classrooms. And, and uh, I believe that it's because the students are creating the models and so many, you know, so many of the models that we, or the things that I thought that I had to show students, I didn't. The students will come up with things. And it, at first it's inefficient and it takes them a long time to, 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 to craft it. And of course the teacher without directly telling them what to think is, does have a lot of control by who, who's 
strategies and models are shared at the end of the lesson, right? It's the nudge of like, hey, let's dig into this idea. Like they put them in a line, they put their 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 circles in a line. Like, how could that be helpful? Or how would how did that help them, right? And and so uh, I've realized, and and I, I I'm kind of trying to think more carefully now, uh, think more deeply uh, about primary mathematics, and especially about when is a a visual that the teacher has created useful, and I think it, it still can be, but I, I think it's less useful than I used to think it was. And I think it's more useful now when kids are creating a visual for themselves first uh, and making sense of that for a, a longer period of time. And then we add on some ideas or, or very carefully introduce things without making it seem like it was the correct way all along. I, I totally get that. I was actually doing a piece of work on, you know, the concrete pictorial abstract and sort of approach and when I came to the examples of pictorial representations I find it difficult not to have to constantly qualify that it's the meaning that the pupils get from a pictorial representation that actually gives it meaning you know it's not me saying here this bar model might efficiently explain this but it you know I, I totally see where you're coming from when do I say this is the way we need to do that because some of the models make sense to adults but really what you want is to make sense to people. So I, yeah, I, I completely see where you're, where you're coming from on, on that one. As well, within a classroom, like the class that I've just had, I had one boy who would go nowhere near a bar model. He would not entertain it for a second. And it didn't matter how much I kind of cajoled him. And I was like, and he's like, yes, but miss, it doesn't help us answer the question. But it's just an extra step to help us answer that. Like, it's just a step in the middle between, here's the question, here's the answer. And, and I was like, okay, if it doesn't, and initially I was very stuck on, but he has to draw it. And then we had a very frank conversation. He's like, miss, it just frustrates us that I have to draw it. And I was like, if it's not helping you, why am I making you do it? And then eventually it, it just became, and he was the only one, the rest of them really like, because it, it helped them to kind of see what was the missing bit, but he just refused. And initially I was very, like you say, I was, it was for me that it helped and then it didn't help him so I just kind of went okay that's fine you you do you because you're the one that matters not me at the end of the day I think I think it's particularly important with the pupils you're working with Steph because there's definitely research out there that says if they're at a reason at a you know towards the end of primary and they already understand things you're not actually they're, they're going they're not going to get much benefit you know I think it's it's there's a lot you can get from it, you know, like representing mathematical structures and things, but I think it's, it's the right tool for the right job. So, so Steph, you're a year six teacher, mathematics and library lead, PGC mentor, book blogger and runner. Tell us about your journey and how you got here. So a bit like Berkeley, I've got a very unconventional way into teaching. Um, if I go all the way back to my A-levels, I kind of, I fell in love during my A-levels and I gave up on my A-levels because working full-time and being in love was just more important um and obviously that then fell <laughs> fell apart and I've always wanted to be a teacher I've got a massive family and I was always the one that looked after the younger children so I've always wanted to be a teacher and I got to about 20 and I was like I, I, I know what I want to do but I don't know how to get there so I went back to college and I got a childcare qualification because I didn't I still couldn't see how to get there and then I, so part of that, I volunteered at my primary school. I volunteered one day a week initially. And then by the end of the year, it was four days a week because I just, 
that was where I was learning I wasn't learning at college they were just giving me words and I was like being in the classroom and seeing how this child associates with this child with this lesson is way more valuable to me so I got this childcare qualification interviewed for a job and didn't get the job because I interviewed terribly <laughs> but luckily there was another job available and probably illegally they just kind of gave me the job but this is like 14 years ago now so I started at the school that I am now still working at as a TA and I was like right I've got one foot in the door I know where I want to like I don't know how to get there but I'm in now and this is my in and I did I was a TA for five or six years and every single person who worked there was like you are destined to be a teacher you need to be a teacher I didn't believe that I could do it I'm not very I'm not very confident but like I just had a eureka moment one day where I was like I can't do it so I then became a HLTA just to like go that one step further and be more of a teacher and as I was a HLTA I taught like three days throughout the week I taught all day on a Friday because there was a, we had a teacher who didn't work on a Friday and then I did all of the PPA and covered everything being a HLTA gave me that like yes this is me because I had so much experience four year degree was cut down to two years which I was like this is amazing um yeah I got my got my degree and then I did a skit um so that is Berkeley that's like when you work at a school and you get a qualification that way and that was very skit at my school so at like at all of my 14 years which is lovely probably a drawback to that and then god they were interviewing for a job you must interview better this time you must. otherwise we can't give you um but i did i was much better so yeah started was employed as an nqt worked a year and a term in year five and then the year six teacher was leaving so i had to go up to year six went in to year six in the january so i've been in year six for just under two years and then she left February half term. So I'd been year six teacher for six weeks. I'd been shadow maths lead. And then she left in the February. And then the week after we got off studded. So I had been maths lead properly for a week. And we, we were off studded. And obviously they wanted to do a deep dive on maths. And I was like, ah, what? They would not speak to the old maths lead. We explained that she's only been left a week, but they would not speak to her because they were like you should know your stuff and I did like she I came out very positive she exactly I was so pleased but I did a whole day the first day just talking about maths and it was the scariest thing I've ever done in my life so yeah I went from TA to teacher in one school over 13 years nice you, you'll have been listening to whenever we're talking about Chris and his journey you know um, yeah, a lot of parallels there as well. I, like I love the school that I work at, and I wouldn't be the teacher that I am today had the head who was actually my head when I was a child just taken that risk every single time. So the risk to give us the TA job, the risk to make us a HLTA, the risk to actually say yes, go and do your degree part time, because I wasn't missing any of work, but I was like on a Thursday, I was five till nine at university and then I would teach all day on a Friday like you don't just trust anyone to teach all day on a Friday 
I know Friday is a bit of a Friday afternoon can be a bit of a write-off but yeah I feel very lucky to be the teacher that I am today but all is confidence in me. Can I ask I'm, I'm curious because you're you're a book blogger as well like how do, how has that influenced your your understanding of math or vice versa? It's funny because a lot of people don't see me as a maths person I'm sure Kieran, like, I'm maths isn't the first thing you think of when you think of me. A lot of people, books and English and reading is where a lot of people think of me as. But that's, like, at work, I am the maths girl. I love maths. If I could just do maths forever, like, I think my dream job is to work in a middle school and just be a maths teacher. We don't have many middle schools in Newcastle, unfortunately. Honestly, I don't know. I think reading is very much a pleasure for me. It's something that I do that I don't necessarily have to relate to work. I'm very lucky in that a lot of the books that I read, I read and then can talk to my children about. But I love any time I read a book that's got maths in it. I'm like, ah, yes, that, that I can put on my, my shelf of more maths books. But you do see a lot of pattern in story that you see in maths. And then you go like, oh, well, that's well, why that works. And like, just I don't necessarily always see the link because I, I'm not looking for it I'm looking to dive into this fantasy world to get lost and with dragons or whatever yeah that's kind of me me, me side passion but that's so interesting because there is there's patterns in the way that that the an author will tell a story and if it was always the same though you'd be bored right there's it's like this author putting a twist on the pattern which elements are they are they bringing together in a unique way and that's the same thing with music it's the same 12 notes but but we find new ways of putting them together yeah i think like if everything just happened the same every time whether it's music or whether it's stories or whether it's life it would be very kind of black and white whereas because you can change it up slightly and just change one note or just change one like bit of a story, you are doing something mathematical to it. it you, it's just not a number that you're doing it to. Um, there's, there's maths everywhere. And I think for me, that's what I want kids to know. There's maths everywhere. It just doesn't have to be a sequence of numbers or a sequence of shapes. It's, there's maths in everything. And that is very much my... I don't know, Kieran, if this is a question later on, but that's my ethos in maths, is maths is everywhere. Maths is a language. It's not just numbers. Yeah, I, I love that, guys. And, you know, when you're talking there, and especially when you're saying, Steph, about changing one thing, you know, it's it's that beautiful path to generalization. You know, and like where you're talking about this, wow, look at this, look, this is what the maths can do. It's when you make those slight tweaks, you know, you know, the notes were already there. You just change the order slightly and then, you know, watch something apart for you and Mozart there. I don't know, yeah, he's, he's been gone long enough. He won't be up too upset. Um, so I think jazz pianist must be the uh, absolutely the coolest backstory that anyone's had so far. Um, <laughs> but I think I think it might be helpful if we go for some context next. So say someone arrives in the United States of America, qualified to teach and looking for a job. What must they absolutely know about the system in place and how to get by? Now, I, I have a follow-up question about your question, which is when you say the system, you said the system in place. Now, are you talking about it, like, how do I, how do I survive the bureaucracy or, or are you talking about something else? So I, th I think when I moved to Ireland, the way teachers interact with schools 
is very, very different to how they do in England. You know, even though there's a short stretch of what 200 miles of of water between the two, and so what I'm thinking is, what is it that teachers need to know about what they'll be expected to do, how they'll develop, you know, things things that sort of nuts and bolts of being a teacher, but what's that like in the United States? And then what Steph will answer what it's like in England. Um, and then I think we can sort of compare because then it it almost adds that context for our responses because if our attention is in a different direction, then you can you can almost put pieces together that you might not necessarily do without the, without the context. So in the US, there's a lot of bureaucracy and, and there's this, I would say, I would describe like an interesting push and pull between um, teachers feeling like they are being controlled. And, and a lot of times they are, there's just a lot of um, administrative things to do. Um, and there's tests, there's, you got to assign homework, you got to do all, all, there's all these things you got to do. So there's that, but then there's also the, the other side of it where there's rarely, um, because there's a lot for the administrators to do as well, they rarely are in the classrooms. So you also have a lot of freedom in some ways to run your classroom in, in a way that makes sense for you or try something new. So it's a push and pull, uh, I think in the United States between being controlled and having a lot of freedom. I don't know if I'm gonna speak out to him being so young in my career, but I think the curriculum pulls a lot of teachers in lots of ways that they don't want to be like you can put out on twitter a question what do you think they should remove from the curriculum and you'll get the same kind of answers every time but then you will get someone who was like why do you need to why do you want to take that out it's really really important and i think i know speaking from my own experience there are things in the curriculum that i just think get rid of it it's not important and there are other things that we like financial literacy as a year six teacher I would love my kids to know like this that and the other about whatever but I think if you're a new teacher don't be scared to put your own slant on things obviously there's going to be rules and regulations from whichever school you go to but you should have the freedom of autonomy to say I don't want to necessarily do it that way because it doesn't fit my children and I think as soon as it's not because it doesn't fit my children then you need to throw it out the window because whatever you're doing should be for your children it shouldn't be oh I'm going to teach them it this way because that was how I was taught it and I'll be honest I've done I've done that I've gone oh I, I, this is how I was taught it so this is how I'll do it um it needs to be like Berkeley was saying before it needs to be what works for your children like when you start talking about giving them an, a blank piece of paper and asking them to work something out, I nearly died. But I also see there's so much merit in that because how, how I would work out, how this, how Kieran would work it out, how you would work, like there's so many. And I think as an NQT or like a newly qualified teacher or even an early career teacher, have the confidence to let your kids do that. And if someone says to you, well, why are you doing it? You've got to play. You've got to learn where your children's strengths are. You've got to know this is the bit they, they need modelled. Or actually, they don't need the model in here. They need it here. This is this is where they need the vocab. This is where they need me to intercept. And I think a lot of... I was really lucky. My degree, part of it was primary math specialism. So I had a bit of background. 
but like I know that if you go to if you've only got an English degree and then you do a PGC or whatever you won't spend that long on maths you won't spend that long on English you won't spend that long on PE whatever so just having the confidence to go what do you need what can I then facilitate which is really scary (laughs) because kids you can have 30 kids who need a different thing but there'll be like a common thread so yes your head's going to be saying we're going to do a boot scrutiny next week and your deputy is going to be saying oh I'm going to be doing this and I want to see a planning and I want to see this and like don't be scared to ask for help someone's been in your position before someone's gone I don't know what I'm doing so don't be scared to take risks but also ask for help and I would say that that relates uh, a lot to something the definition definition I've heard for problem solving which is problem solving is when you what you do when you don't know what to do and we sometimes I think there's two two things that are important there one is that we we're especially as a new teacher sometimes you wait to be told what to do just because it's there's so many things right oh here's the math curriculum okay I'll do the math curriculum you know I'll read these books to my students because those are the ones that my neighbor teacher is reading, right? You're, you're waiting to be told what to do, but that isn't problem solving uh, in a way. It's somebody else is solving your problems for you, right? And that's okay if that's working for you, but also uh, it's okay, like you're saying, to say, you know what, I'm going to try something different and I don't know how it's going to work, right? You don't have to have everything planned out uh, before you try. You try it and you see how it goes and you respond and that's problem solving. And we can do that ourselves as teachers. We can also give our students an opportunity it, it sounds like there's actually quite the systems have quite a lot in common, you know, and I think it, it's definitely unfair of me to ask you about whole countries, you know, particularly as I know that even maths textbooks are state and perhaps county specific in the United States. Um, and then Steph, in England, local authorities and multi-academy trusts will be totally different, you know, depending on where you are in the country. So I know I, I put you on the spot, but I'm just sort of thinking about, um, you know, how the, how the two systems marry up, you know, do they have a lot, a lot in common? Um, and then almost that'll feed into, you know, sort of where we go to next, you know, and I think, you know, perhaps a question that, you know, can never be fully answered, but why is a high quality mathematics education so important? I think if you learn the language of maths, you can learn the language of the world. And that sounds like a really deep and complex thing, but if you know that two add seven is nine, yes, that's right. I had to think about that. <laughs> you know, two add seven is nine. You, there are so many things you can know because of that. There are so many relationships that you can know because of that fact. Like I hammer all the time the importance of times tables. That is a hill that I will die on. Knowing your multiplication facts up to 12 12s, which for me, like 10 10s is probably enough. Knowing your multiplication facts can get you so far in maths. I think if you don't know the basics, you're not, like in English, in any language, if you don't know the basics of any language, you can't go deeper with a language. You don't know the basics of maths. You don't know the language of maths. You can't think deeper because you're just going to get stuck on numbers which is kind of a contradictory thing to say but if you don't know how everything is linked in maths you can't see that everything can also be linked in a different way like if you just give your children questions about oranges 
they're only going to think about oranges. As soon as you turn it to like, I'm thinking in threes yet. So we then think about triangles. You can't then put that knowledge over to the triangles. I think get the basics right and you can do so much more with it. So, so I hear you saying that it's important for kids to be able to see relationships and then use something that they know. You're saying like seven plus two is nine to help them make sense of other things. And, um, and I agree. And I want to come back to, cause I I've been, uh, I, my colleagues have pushed me on the ideas of fluency and fluency is always a, a hot topic in the United States. Maybe we should come back to this. Cause I want to answer your other question first, Karen. Um, uh, but I've stopped using the word fact. I've stopped using the word fact, or I try to, I try not to use it, but let's come back to that. Um, so you said high quality mathematics education. And I agree with what Steph is saying about a language. And I think that if we spent 12 or 13 years teaching kids a new language, and at the end of that, they couldn't tell their own story using that language, we would say, we need to start from scratch. Like we're doing something wrong in teaching this language. But we have so many, so many uh, students who graduate and don't realize how they how they could be empowered by by maths it's just a hoop to jump through it's uh, something on the to-do list to check off and and there's there's a lot of anxiety around math there's a lot of hate <laughs> people feel like oh what's the worst subject it's like broccoli you know people just people feel that way about maths but really it could be just like a language that you learn something that you use to communicate with other people and to make sense of the world. I think one of the things I'm totally buttoning button in here, and I'm really sorry. Um, one of the things I hear quite a lot is parents who go, oh, they don't need to be good at maths because I'm not very good at maths. And I'm like, oh, no, don't say that. Like, no one's bad at maths. You just don't see maths as well as other people. And I think that is one of the things that I stuck always kick the air off with is you're not bad at maths no one's bad at maths we all need like i i love maths i'm but if you like give me a shape question no thanks i don't know what i'm doing i do but i don't like it as much as arithmetic like that is my that is my forte so yeah when i hear people saying like parents oh i'm not very good at maths or i didn't like maths at school so it doesn't matter i'm like oh please don't say that but i understand why totally understand why I think the, the, the empowering aspect and, and not realizing how empowered you could be is, is something I've been thinking about a lot recently. And I often have these conversations with my pupils who are about to go to secondary school about the, about the power that, you know, working hard in maths can have. Is, is there anything you do with your students you think, yeah, this, this is how I can empower you? So, uh, and I have to speak as somebody who's out, outside of the classroom now. So I visit a lot of classrooms and, and I think what I, what I see um, often is teachers not telling kids how to solve, not telling them how to model, which like Steph said, can feel really like, oh, this is this feels so weird and so different because it's totally different than how we learn math. Uh, but what happens is they, they bring all of their creativity and ingenuity from all subjects, from just being a human and uh, they apply it to math. And then by practicing it, uh, uh, maths, sorry. And then, with, and then by practicing it with maths, it, it's also transferable to the other areas. Like it, it's, to me, it's just your, your, I think it was Einstein who said, you're training your mind to think. That's the purpose of education. It's not to amass knowledge and especially not now because we have Google. Um, so it's, how are you, uh, we just happen to be talking about maths. That happens to be the content that we're, that, that we're 
gathering around together. And to me, it is really about collaboration. We're gathering around this topic and we're all just gonna become sharper thinkers together. And not all in the same way. I think we, we also, I think there's, because of standardized tests and just the nature of assessment as it currently exists, it's very limited in how we, what we can assess. And I know that might be controversial to say on this podcast, not, not uh, because of the host, but just because of maybe the country that this is being broadcast in. So we can talk more about that later. But I will say that I think that uh, what I've noticed is the teachers who, who let the kids work together in any way that makes sense to them, they draw upon each other's strengths and those strengths don't all have to be the same. One of the things that I started doing yesterday, which might make a few teachers go, oh, is I would give a calculation and its answer, whatever the calculation was, give the calculation and the answer and say, right, how did I get it? And you'll have a few kids who go, don't know, you just knew the answer. And I go, no, like, look at the, look at the relation. And I use the word relationship a lot in maths. It's a, it's a word. Initially, when they get to my class, they're like, he, 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 she said relationship. And I'm like, no, it just means two things. What have they got to do with each other? And that was only something I started doing last year. And it really helped my last year's class to go, oh, right. Maybe I could try this. Maybe I can try this. Maybe I can try this. And them not being afraid to make a mistake because as soon as you make a mistake and you go oh right I've made a mistake a lot of children find that hard to get over if you don't have a culture of it's fine to make a mistake so yeah that was one thing that I started and I know that like some people won't think that that's a good idea but it worked for my children because there wasn't one method that I would say is the right the right method I would tell them what the standardized method was that like in a SAT paper, this might have to be the method that you use or whatever. This might be how you started off. But yeah, just giving them a calculation and using the right words. Like a sum is an addition. A sum is not a subtraction. And a lot of people just throw the word sum around as a calculation. So yeah, and making mistakes. Like I make mistakes all the time. I'm just human. But yeah, one of the things was give them a calculation and the answer. How did I get there? And if I can get there, brilliant. Then like you were saying, Berkeley, how many different methods have we got around the room? You're making me think of, um, I think it was Dan Meyer, who, um, American educator who wrong and brilliant, or he has a hashtag on Twitter, hashtag wrong and brilliant. And uh, if you think about it, you can be right in a boring way. You can be wrong in a boring way, but you can be right in an interesting way. You can be wrong in an interesting way. And I care about those last two a lot more um, and, and just thinking about what are the ideas, whether kids are correct or incorrect, what are the ideas underneath what they're talking about that are, that are interesting and useful and Karen used the word generalize uh, earlier. And I think that's so important. You can be wrong, but you can have an idea that, that generalizes or, or is talking about a larger pattern. And that's what we should be, those relationships like Steph said that we should be talking about in math. Earlier, you talked about how, you know, the, the, the teacher can influence the direction, you know, for instance, by choosing which examples are shared towards the end. How would a teacher spend their time in this kind of situation? So I'll tell a story of a, of a third grade teacher, uh, third grade is uh, nine-year-olds, uh, who was working with her class on multiplication, but she didn't say, oh, we're doing multiplication. She said, here's a problem, <laughs> represent and solve it in any way that makes sense to you. And it, and it happened to be 
uh, about something that was happening to them the next day, which was they're having a writing party and she was going to buy them cookies. And she was actually going to do this. So it was, you know, it was relevant and interesting problem. And uh, so she said, okay, um, there's, I'm going to buy this many boxes and there's going to be this many cookies in each one. How many cookies are we going to have? Uh, but she put blanks instead of the numbers. And so there's number choices at the bottom. Like you could, you could do six and 12. She had 12 and six. She had uh, seven and 11 or something like that. Um, so uh, the kids went to work. Uh, and then she's walking around, she's, she's watching them work, she's listening to them talk with their partner. And then she's thinking carefully, okay, what, what's the, the theme? What's the, the story of the class right now? Right now, a lot of the kids are, are drawing out every single cookie. Um, and, and that feels so inefficient to us as adults. We're like, oh, you could just do this, or you could just do that. She doesn't say that. She, she, or she does say that, but without her words. So she chose two students to share. One student was a student who drew every box of cookies, so, uh, or every, every cookie box and every cookie. Um, and then a student who wrote uh, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, six times, and then broke up the 12 into tens and twos, and then put the tens together and put the twos together. And she, so each student got to explain how they solved and the class got to ask follow-up questions. And it's so cool because she, like the kids were leading the discussion. She said, what questions do you have for so-and-so? And the kids would be like, but why did you, why did you do this? Why did you do that? And the kids are asking better questions than I would have thought to ask too. Uh, and, it, and it's just so authentic when it's coming from your peers, right? Uh, so the kids ask the questions, they explain how they solved. And then she asked, what's the same and different about these two strategies? And she gave them time to think, time to talk. And what emerged was that uh, it's not obvious to the kids that the 10 and the two, or the, 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 the student who had done it in what we would see as a more efficient way, that the 10 and the two exists also in the drawing by ones. And as soon as the kids started talking about that, and she's like, well, can we draw? Can we, can we annotate where that is exactly? It, may, it helped most of the class. And part of the reason she told me later, she picked the, one, the kid who, who did it by ones because most of the class was doing that. She was trying to subtly nudge the class towards an idea if they were comfortable and they wanted to take up the idea that they could do 10 and two or 12, just the new, the, the, the write out the number 12 instead of drawing it all out. And she said, you know, maybe tomorrow if we do a similar problem, more kids will, will start doing that, a couple more kids. And that's okay because I'm gonna keep coming back to it until kids are more and more comfortable with that. But they have to see they have to trust that that 10 and that two exists in the picture. What's the same and what's different are my favorite, well, two of my favorite maths questions. What do you notice is another one of my, that I use across the curriculum. So the children don't see it as like a standalone maths question. Like you can use it in science all the time. Berkeley, I think you tweeted a while ago recently about a cheese sandwich and which one was the odd one out. I love which one doesn't belong or which one's the odd one out because you can just like you can purposefully put them out there like we were doing prime numbers so I put out four four numbers which one doesn't belong and you put the very obvious one in there like seven and then even numbers and some kids will just go oh well that one's the odd one out because it's odd like great what else do we know about seven that doesn't apply to these numbers oh well it's one digit number brilliant and you might not get there straight away, but you'll get there eventually. You will, some of them will go, oh, well, it's a prime number and we know that. And I, I don't need to say that. Um, but yeah, like what's the same, what's different? 
what do you notice and which one's the odd one out which one is the odd one out is my favorite maths thing to do but again you can apply it to science you can apply it to english you can apply it like across the curriculum and kids initially will be very hesitant so it's a thing that is likely it's best if you try and get it as low down as you can so that by the time they get to yeah six they get to 10 they get to 11 it's just part of their like vernacular to recognize what is the same about these four things what is different about these four things and oh there's definitely one that's the odd one out because of and then you're hoping that they're gonna say a math maths thing if they don't it's not the end of the world but it doesn't just have to be numbers it can be shapes it could be words like i once did the words four five six and seven and like they were like what there isn't one that's the odd one out and like it took them having a discussion together it like this was right it's going to take you two minutes it took about 10 but I thought do you know what you're actually running with it and eventually one of them said well miss the number four has got four letters therefore it's the other one out because the rest of them five doesn't have five letters six doesn't have six letters seven doesn't have seven letters so you won't be scared to let them go down that tangent obviously if they're going down that tangent and it's still 20 minutes later and you need them here then you're gonna have to kind of haggle them back yourself but yeah just like ask them and as a facilitator if you're letting them go look for the children who are just kind of a bit lost because children there will be children who are just a bit lost who don't know what they're doing they know what they're doing but they're just a bit like i'm just answering these questions and talk to them about what they're doing because they'll probably have more of an idea than what their face says because i noticed that and for those students who and, and i'm one of them who take longer to process when you have an activity like that where there's multiple correct answers uh, it, it will actually it's not just about it there's not answers there's ideas and there's justification for those ideas right um, for somebody who's a slow processor like me it gives me a chance to really think about uh, about the problem more deeply and and I, I'm more likely to participate if I don't feel like I'm going to be right or wrong and by the way seven doesn't belong because it's two syllables and it annoys me when I count because I like I that. To, I've never I, you know, if I'm, I'm trying to count quickly and I get to seven, I have to, I have to it's like seven. I, I, everything else is one syllable. Wow. I just, we need to rename seven. <laughs> I love how pedagogically rich mathematics is. And I'm listening to your explanation. And I'm really glad I asked what that might look like, because I think if you looked at what might, you know, like, like you say, for the audience in, certainly in, in Britain, might sound a novel approach to the teaching of mathematics. I reckon, as you described, you could map out all the features of certainly what I would consider effective teaching, you know, that assessment and being responsive in the moment, that deep subject knowledge, the knowledge of the curriculum sequence, you know, all of those things go into making the sort of, I don't want to say task, but the, uh, the approach you described, making it successful. So I think it's not actually as, as, um, as different as what, you know, one might assume you know, on, on first list. And so, yeah, I, it's, you know, and, and that's one of the things I love about maths is that there are so many ways to skin that cat. Just listen to you guys. I can, you know, like listen all day. Like I said, easily a six, seven hour conversation in the, in the, in the offing here. Less blood than skinning a cat too. I'd love for someone to talk to me about maths that much. Everyone wants to talk to me about books, which is great. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but maths is, 
like a sec- very secret passion of mine. This is your chance to rebrand yourself, Steph. You know, change that blog to maths books. You know, because there's like there's one there's the the math curse. I think it's a Polish American lady who wrote it and talking about all the times that they see maths, like you said earlier on, Steph, about maths in the world around them and stuff. And we we use it at the start of our big maths weeks where we're you know and look at this and then from there they're writing their own stories and things. But yeah. Yeah, so this is your chance, Steph. This is your, you know, you can make that move. <laughs> I can rebrand myself. Hey, it took me five years to get this far. I am not changing. I think we may have already started to answer this, and this always happens. But if you had to condense your approach to the teaching of mathematics into a set of guiding principles, what would they be? All right, so th- this is similar to what I said before, uh, but I- I'm going to quote a- an article um, that a teacher wrote in a teacher education magazine uh, almost 25 years ago, I think, Stephen uh, Reinhardt, he said, never say anything a kid can say. And I would add to that, never show anything a kid can show, never do anything that a kid can do uh, for them. Um, and I think my challenge has been, and my change over the last five years especially, has been realizing how many things kids can say and do on their own. So what is my role? It's it's like Liz Romero crafting crafting the story of the class behind the scenes without them realizing. So she's still giving them that ownership. Uh, how do I how do I do that? And knowing that there are still some things in mathematics that are conventions. So uh, you know the number line goes left to right. Uh, the the numbers increase as, as you're going right. That's something that I that I can tell them. And it, it's, for me, it's just a matter of finding the right time to tell them or maybe an engaging way to uh, to make it feel more like their idea. Oh, hey, can you know you said that you started at seven and, and you added two by going seven, eight, nine. Can I show you what that might look like on a number line? What do you notice about this number line? And then the kids can say whatever they want. There's no right answer. They're, they can notice anything they want about the number line. And then we'll just keep coming back to it. Um, so really trying to refine what my role is in introducing conventions and things that kids won't figure out on their own but also staying out of their way for the rest of them. I think for me I am still learning I'm like whether I'm four years in or whether I'm 40 years in I'll still be learning because the world changes and conventions change and like everything around us changes um I think I need to be the best model that I can be of maths I need to show the passion for maths. I need to show enthusiasm. I need to try my best to use the language that I want them to use. And I think I work in a um, in a very high percentage EEL school. So I've got a lot of English as second language learners. And they come to me, if they come to me straight away, they don't know what a subtrahend is. They don't know what a minuend is. And like, I didn't know what those things were four years ago those are lots of new vocabulary to me so I think if I can be the best mathematician that I could be whether I'm teaching and presenting or whether I'm working with a child or whether I'm working with a group I think if you can be the best model you can be they can see that yes you're going to make mistakes and yes things aren't going to go your way but mathematicians are people who try they use what they know to help them get somewhere else because you're not just going to know the answer straight away there's very few people who can look at whatever and go oh it's this or oh it's that to think get 
get the language of maths right whether that's the language of numbers or whether that is the very specifics of maths and minuend and subtrahend and pentagon and just something as simple as don't always show them a square like this if you turn it on its side like as a teacher we also like i know that i'm guilty of this so guilty of showing them a square just as a like bog standard square or a pentagon as like a house or a hexagon the bog standard way triangles in particular or you go around look around a school all the triangles are the same which is something that i like i've tried really hard to make sure that we're showing different kinds of triangle triangles upside down but yeah be the best model that you can be and hopefully you help one child see themselves as a mathematician whether it's more brilliant whether that's only that one child that's one child kieran i'm i'm reading your book right now so i already I think I might be able to predict, um, but I am curious what your answer to this question would be. Or do you want to hear my prediction first? <laughs> no, I think I think it's only fair if I if I have a go how the tables have turned. <laughs> so you know a lot of a lot of what's come through in this conversation. So if I had to condense my approach, I think it would be be really clear about what you want to teach or what you want the students to learn. Be prepared in all senses of the word in terms of curricular preparation preparation for possible conversations you know the things that come with a lot of experience to an extent but you can do the the grind work so be clarity preparation and then like you say passion in in the execution i think if if i could have three things and it, it, it's taken me the bulk of 15 years to get to that point um, and i think it's really interesting when you talk about both of you mentioned about how you're still learning and you're still refining you know I was quiet on social media for a long time because I was always worried about how my answers or my suggestions would be interpreted because I'm constantly changing my mind the more I read things. But I think the, the, those three things, and, and a lot of it gets done, as you say, behind the scenes, because when you're making 3,000 decisions a day, you need to know which direction you're going to go in the blink of an eye. And so I would be, um, I would have clarity, preparation, and um, passion and execution. How close was that? Yeah, no, that, that, that's uh, a lot of overlap because I was, uh, I think something that I am getting from what, what you are writing is the, that purposefulness. And, and it's kind of like a, almost like a flashlight. Like you can direct your, your attention to a lot of different places, those 3000 decisions you're making a day. But if you, if you choose something to focus in on and, and make it more purposeful, increase the purpose of, of one area. Also at the same, like you, you've, you've zoomed in, you've become more purposeful, uh, but then you also zoom out. You can, you can transfer it or, or realize how it influences more of what's going on. And, and like an example from your book would be like, you're talking about uh, understanding the structures of grouping problems or what we would call grouping problems. So like multiplication and the two types of division. And I think before a teacher would learn about the models of like a bar model or number bonds or the different things that people might want to use. And I think it's, it's more important to know the structures of grouping problems because then everything, then you can be more purposeful about your choices about which models you want to use to make sense of those things. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting you bring, use that example because there's a book on the recommended reading or the essential reading of every ITT course, you know, Dirk Haylock, um, and Ralph Manning, Mathematics Explained. It has a really brilliant section on structures, but I encounter hundreds of teachers who don't, who couldn't articulate what the structures are. 
And the fact that I had to include that section in there, it needs to happen more because like you say, Steph, everything else feeds together off of an understanding of those. You know, the audience for thinking deeply about primary mathematics is the teacher who doesn't have the requisite knowledge, is just beginning. This is where we start. And then you get to be creative once you've nailed a lot of those, I think, principles, you know, because we've talked about it already. You know, there are many, many ways to teach maths. But I find if you, with the teacher certainly I've worked with, once you've got some of those in place, you can then build and decide what your pedagogy is going to be. And those structures are independent of pedagogy. And that's being able to differentiate between those is so important because in some people's minds, those are equal to bar modeling, for example. But bar, mod bar modeling is a way of showing these deeper, larger structures. Yeah. Can we talk about facts now? Because I think <laughs> Yes, I am this fascinated in what you call them. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I just want to circle back to what we were what, what we were saying because I I I totally agree with the way that you're thinking about them as, and when we say facts, I mean that's our sh that's our shorthand uh, for talking about single digit addition and single digit multiplication. But what I hear you I hear you describing two things that are different. I think some than than the way that that they're sometimes approached. Um, which uh, the way that it's typically approached in the U.S. is here's some flashcards you got to memorize these, um, and it's uh, you're you're not learning what it represents, what it could represent, and what it and how there's relationships within the facts and how the facts relate to things later. Um, so you use the word fact, but I, but to me, I don't think that like I hear you describing some something much richer and more beautiful and profound, right? And um, so I'm, I don't know what to call it yet. Um, one of my, one of my bosses uh, likes to say the math, uh, the maths relationships, because we'll say maths facts in the US. She says the maths relationships, like we have to call it what it is. It's, it's a set of relationships that are important for you to know. But I've, I've been um, trying to think uh, more about six times seven and dig into that one quote unquote fact. And the more that I think about it, and I, I, I like, I think about it almost every day, uh, the more there is to it, right? Uh, like what could the six represent? What could the seven represent? They could both be the same thing. They could both be centimeters. One could be a number of groups and the other could be how much is in each group. In that case, if it's six boxes of seven cookies, the seven isn't seven cookies, it's seven cookies per one box. So it's actually, we got this ratio happening but it's a hidden ratio because you just write the number seven. You don't write seven over one, but that's kind of confusing, right? Why don't we talk about that with the kids? Um, and, and, and I could go on and on, like seven, six times seven times one. Uh, this is a, something uh, that I got from James Tanton. Uh, shout out to him. I, I, I love being able to play with that, that idea of multiplying by one or adding with zero as almost like a portal to another dimension because I can put anything I want in that one, uh, as long as it adds up to one, I could put in a subtraction problem that adds to one. And then I could, I could turn six times seven into the most convoluted looking problem. But then I could show you how, how, if you look at it the right way, it's just six times seven times one, because that one, you know, or, uh, you know, I could put, you know, the one could be 17 over 17 and I could, I could make six times seven look really ugly. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm, I'm playing with these ideas of how everything's related. Um, and how when you focus in on one quote unquote fact, um, there's so much more to it. One of the things that I did recently was I asked everyone in school 
to do just a five minute activity that was show me five and every every child had a bit of paper in front of them show me five however you want to show me five and it was really interesting the younger children so in key stage one so like seven and younger they drew like five cherries they drew a hand they drew a tens frame with five dots in they drew a circle cut in half with five on one side five on the like and you got then I got to my class and now they just representations has been is a massive kind of thing that I am overhauling at the minute because my children couldn't they could do five fingers they could do five toes and I said right well I've had place value counters five of them right okay draw it then and it was just interesting how the younger the children were the more representations they were kind of exposed to yet the older they became those representations didn't matter because five was just a numeral it was just a digit now it wasn't five of something it wasn't half of something it wasn't a quarter of something it was just five it's just five that's what it is miss so you're saying they could have drawn 20 of something being divided into four groups as a representation of five right like if five is just five and you can't think of anything else it could represent it's lifeless yeah because that goes back to the i don't know if you've got this far the perceptual proceptual understanding and the idea that when you see five you see everything that five is and if you don't see that down the line you're doing twice as much work i think um john Starr calls it potentially adaptive expertise if if like you say you are only seeing this, the surface, I think then your, your mathematics education is impoverished. And I think when you talk about the distinction between facts and this really beautiful, rich idea, and then what is quite a mundane idea, and even when you said the definition of problem solving that I've heard earlier on, you know, it just shows you how prevalent these examples are in maths, because there are, there are, are terms that mean completely different things to, to completely different people. Like problem solving, you know, you could have five or six and, you know, from the everything is a problem to this is a, is a problem, you know, and, and everything in between, you know, it, it's fascinating. Um, and I think, yeah, it, it just shows you, it's an, an, you know, another example of, you know, how complex mathematics is and why, you know, if I go back to my guiding principle of clarity, you know, I think being clarity in what we mean and how we express it with our colleagues is just as important as with the, with the pupils. So this, this may be another unanswerable question, but in your opinion, what's the single most important aspect of mathematics education? That's, that's really hard because yeah, I don't think there is an answer. I think there's an answer for a child. I don't think there's an answer for a group of children or a generation of children, but I will always go back to get the basics right. Get, get the facts right get them knowing the relationships between the numbers and what you mean by 10 and what you mean by like I think number blocks cause it like the fiveness of five and the sixness of six um get the basics right then you can build on that you can't build a house without foundations get the basics right you can go quite far with the, with it then my answer would probably change if you asked me in an hour or tomorrow but at this moment, I'm thinking about uh, curiosity. Um, as Steph said earlier, asking big important questions like what do you notice and what do you wonder? And I think you have to be curious. You have to be, you have to make space for it and it takes time. And at first when you ask kids to be curious, they're gonna be trying to read your mind. What do you want me to say? Uh, but true curiosity is really just whatever's in your mind and in your heart, right? So. Are we making space for kids to be curious in, in math? And then do we extend from there? Do we actually follow some of the 
the tangents that they that they have. And I'm thinking about an example from the book um, by Tracy Zager called Becoming the Math uh, Teacher You Wish That You Had Had. And there's a teacher that she profiles in their first grade, so six-year-olds, who uh, she was gonna start a, a unit about shapes. And, and instead of just, you know, opening up the, the textbook and, and kind of moving along, she asked uh, the students, what are you curious about? And one of the questions that a student asked became the guiding question for them for that whole month, which was, are shapes numbers? Or maybe it was, are shapes math? Are shapes maths? But it was this curiosity, and they kept coming back to this, this question from the student. So it wasn't from the textbook, it was from the student. And, and I'm, again, thinking about that ownership uh, and that drive that the students have to, to work on something that for them is a new idea. And it's okay if it's been invented by adults somewhere else, you know, they'll find that out later, but, but don't take away that, that curiosity and that, those aha moments from the kids. I'm actually just thinking about you reading the chapter on textbooks, working in a system where textbooks are reasonably prevalent and have been, you know, whereas in England in the 80s, people sort of gave up on them and then are only sort of <laughs> come back. It must, must be quite strange to see what, <laughs> what that, uh, that's like. You know, I think if you put both your answers together, you get this... Uh, you get this really powerful model for, for maths education. Another thing that I've definitely been guilty of, and it comes back to kind of, Kieran, you're put a torch on one thing. I think sometimes we're guilty of trying to do too many things really well. You can't do everything really well. Do one thing, get it right, then add the next thing on top. Keep that first thing going. Then once you've got two things cracked, add the third thing. Don't try and do everything all at once because it's not going to happen. Try and do one thing well, then you'll do two things well, then you'll eventually do everything well, but you're never going to be able to try everything at the same time. Yeah, and I, I think as, as teachers, those different parts start to feed each other as we get better at them. And we see, we look at things and new ideas in a different way, you know, having experienced what it's like to learn a piece of pedagogy I don't know if pedagogy comes in pieces but say a, a strategy that you you can use and think oh I'm quite proficient what was it like to do that how does this relate to other pieces and I think the snowball gets bigger as it goes doesn't it so Berkeley you design mathematics visuals what does that entail and how can teachers get the most of the visuals at mathvisuals.wordpress.com yeah no I I um that so that is the website that I created where I started uploading the stuff that I was using with my six-year-olds and um and I would say and this is going to sound crazy maybe don't go to that website uh I have you know people have found ways to use it uh and and, and appreciate it and so I, I'm not taking it down uh, but I've moved my, I, I said, you know what, the nice thing about the internet, you can reinvent yourself, write stuff, you're going to blog about, about maths now. Um, I, I just created a new website, uh, berkeleyeverett.com. And now I'm thinking about, so uh, math visuals was, was, was directed at students. So here's some visuals that you can look at and you can notice and wonder. Um, but, but like I said earlier, it felt like it was kind of showing kids how to think instead of and, and, and when you see a slick visual, you're like, oh, that it feels really truthful when in fact, and this is something that you talk about a lot, Karen, in your book, like you have to be careful, like uh, um, all models are incorrect in some way. Uh, but I, I don't think that's always as clear when you see something that a cool animation, right? You're like, oh, that's the truth, but it's not. And so that's, that's what I'm teasing, trying to tease out for myself uh, as I'm blogging on 
my new website. And now the audience is more for teachers. So I'll give an example. Um, people really have enjoyed some of the fraction visuals that I've made. Uh, but I've been reading the book, Extending Children's Mathematics, and I've been rereading it. And it, it, it talks about starting, uh, not starting with the, a square that's been shaded in, because that's really a geometry and an area problem, which is really abstract. <laughs> and we can tell kids that this is half. We can train them to give us correct answers. Uh, but what happens when you have a square uh, that's been cut down the middle and then only one of those halves is then cut down the middle again. And then one of those small pieces has been shaded in. If you, if you train kids to count how many pieces there are uh, in total as the denominator, and then count how many pieces are shaded in as, as the numerator, they're going to say one third. But really, a kid, if you say, hey, this is a brownie, how much, is the, how much did we eat if it's a shaded region? They'll say, well, uh, young kids who haven't been, quote, unquote, trained in fractions will say, that's a half of a half. Um, and it's because they, they're, not, they're not trying to imagine what the teacher's thinking, right? They're just doing what makes sense. Oh, you cut it in half, and then you cut that half and half again. It's half a half. And what happens, so what this book recommends is uh, starting fraction instruction with what it's connected to, which is partitive division. And so instead of uh, teaching kids to think about shaded in regions, saying there's 12 people, uh, sorry, there's 12 cookies, and four people are going to share them equally. How, how much would each person get, oh, they get three cookies, okay? And, and kindergartners, uh, five-year-olds can do this, is what the research says. And it makes sense to them. And then you say, okay, uh, now there's six cookies, and there's but there's still four people. How do they share those equally? And kids will, they'll pass out whole cookies, and then they got to figure out what to do with the two that are left over. And they'll, you know, that's where, that's where halves emerge from. Uh, and it's situating fractions in connection with whole numbers, right? They're not just this randomly new area of maths that we're gonna be learning. They're, they're connected to whole numbers and they're connected to the action of partitive division. Um, so I guess, long story short, I'm, I'm trying to think about what are the ways where kids can use what they already understand about the world and where, how does maths evolve from that uh, in a more natural way? And, and for me, it's not a visual that we're showing kids from the beginning. It's like problem solving around context. I love that example. First thing that comes to mind is two-year-old, three-year-old understanding what fur is. You know, they know how things have been distributed. And, that, you know, there's definitely this innate mathematical sense as we go through. Um, and then when you're talking about things like cookies, you know, that context, they really understand, you know, because they know that someone's going to get less food than someone else. And <laughs> they can really connect it. Exactly. So that was berkeleyevert.com. Do you want me to change the question? Or are you happy for that to lead in? Should I have known that? Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. I think it's good. To, I, I think right, that, that fits the theme of, of like, as we learn, we're, it's expected that we're going to change our mindset. And uh, I think I heard Pam Harris say, like, if you, if you aren't uh, embarrassed by the way that you were teaching five years ago, <laughs> you, maybe you need to grow a little bit faster. <laughs> that's, that's a mantra to live by, that is. <laughs> interestingly I was doing I was part of a work group for year five to year eight so like nine-year-olds to 13-year-olds um, and it was all about proportional reasoning one of the activities we were asked to do was to use real life things so they had to split up baguettes so it's like this group of six people have got three baguettes but this group of five people have got three baguettes who's gonna which who's gonna get more and then it was um, pieces of cheese and all of the pieces of cheese were different shape and they had to split these pieces of cheese into different 
and there was a, a like a triangular shape and they just it, they just wanted to go straight down the middle or straight across and like well is that fraction the same as this fraction no but if i do this are they all the same though because this is curved whereas these are straight and given children non-standard representations of shape in particular or even number um it's really important because they're not gonna see like a perfect rectangle of bread in real life they're not gonna see a perfect square of whatever in real life they're gonna have to make these judgment calls about this slice of bread that's curved along around the top and not particularly straight down the bottom and try and get like half their sandwich um it was it was interesting because it really frustrated my 11 year old because there wasn't and it was very much a, a resilience activity it was how close can you get to a tenth of that piece of cheese if you do fractions you automatically go to a perfect circle a rectangle or a square so haven't they show them something else it, it, initially even my most able mathematicians were like oh this has never seen anything like this before and i was like well that's the point um but yeah like even for me if you said to me i'll cut this piece of cheese into 10 equal pieces i'd be like i don't think i can it's not it is mathematically possible but it's difficult but yeah i thought that was quite interesting i've never been able to physically cut cheese very well so i don't think it's actually impossible at all <laughs> i just get the greater height you know that, that context being key is really coming through here you know i'm thinking about my own experience my six-year-old when we're playing monopoly the, the the mental calculation he can do to make sure that i'm not taking the money from him you know it is is phenomenal exactly and steph you used to blog about books at littlebutalot.com. Tell me about it. You know, what what we've already sort of mentioned, what first brought you to blogging, you know, and how do you find the time? I make the time. I, I'm, I'm not some kind of wizard. We blog for school. So I was already very familiar with WordPress as a work website. And I've always loved books. Books are very much a thing that is very part of my identity and I wanted a place that I could just talk about books I never imagined it would turn into this incredible kind of side thing that I've got going on um so I just I make the time it's like when people say they don't have time to read you have to make time so on a Sunday I blog on a Sunday every Sunday without fail I will do two hours of work uh, whatever that, whatever that looks like I will do two hours. If it's not done in that time, it's obviously not either important enough or urgent enough. And then I will do two hours of blogging and I can generally bash out five blog posts in two hours. I, I have recently started blogging more about teaching because I am a teacher. I can't get away from that fact. And I, I would say in my Twitter followers, it's half bookish people, half teachers now. It used to be very much more weighted towards bookish people um but i just i do it because for me it's like i've met some of my best friends through being a blogger i've i go to london well i used to before the pandemic all the time for blogging events and stuff like that you find time for your passions whatever that is some people go to the gym every night if you are passionate enough about something you will find time to do it and for me that's my blogging and i i, I love it with all that i am Okay, I hear, I hear a proportional reasoning problem here. If Steph can write five blog posts in two hours, how long will it take her to write a book? Not very long. <laughs> I've written, I think it's like 600,000 words on my blog, <laughs> which is a lot of words. Hats off. Hats off to you. Thanks. 
I, I reckon that's eight, eight edgy books, you know, the, the, at the length that they are at the moment, you know, so, you know, I look forward to reading your book in, in the next couple of years, Steph, you know, once you've got... What would I talk about, Kieran? <laughs> that's why I said a couple of years. You can, you can use this moment as the defining point in your, in your career and say, right, I'm going to research, for instance, problem solving. What is it really? <laughs> and how can we get the most from it, you know, because no one's answered that question yet. Do you know what? If it happens, you two, I will dedicate the book to you two. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> yeah, we, we really should have got some sort of royalty commission down on audio. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, yeah. I, I totally get what you mean. And that habit, whenever I started this podcast, Matt Swain said, make it a routine, make it weekly, because the, otherwise it won't, it won't, it won't happen. And, you know, when I try to write two hours, I would get maybe a paragraph that had been edited and edited. And I, I find this form much more easy because I can go back and listen to audio and then clip, you know, as, as I say, if it were with writing, I couldn't get it, you know, but I think the principles are the same, you know, make it something that is part of what you do in your routine and you can't, um, you know, eventually you don't want to stop, you know, usually, you know, the middle bits, we do those Tuesdays at eight o'clock. And so then we have this bank, that just keeps coming and coming. Yeah, so I, I totally get that. It was like when I became a runner, it started as, I started it in lockdown, actually. And it, it was, you had to do three a week. And because it was a habit, it is now part of my life. It's not, I don't think, oh, I've got to go for a run. I mean, I do sometimes because I don't want to, because it's hard. But like make something a habit, it just becomes part of your life. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I totally get it. Especially with fitness. You know, it's about changing the, that mindset, isn't it? And, making it something that just happened and I haven't gotten there in my personal life I all my professional stuff is sorted but exercise I, I need to I need to follow your advice Steph to be honest so have you any final advice for those teachers who are now feeling energized and ready to up their mathematics teaching game I just want people to enjoy teaching maths if you don't enjoy it your children won't enjoy it not all of them you're not going to capture all of them you're going to capture the ones who identify as a mathematician. You're going to capture the ones who like you because you're their teacher. But you're not going to get those hesitant mathematicians. You're not going to get those reluctant mathematicians. If, if you think this is, maths is something that I want to change about my teaching, please go about it however you see fit. Whether it's reading a book, whether it's going and ask someone a question, whether it's watching videos, whether it's just listening to podcasts, whether it's reading Kieran's book, because it's really good, um, do it. Because as soon as you are enthused about something, the people around you get enthused about it. I, just, I have to agree with Steph again. And I, I, I'll add on to that and I'll say it's like, trust your instincts. Uh, so if, you, if you're feeling unsettled, if something doesn't quite feel right, or you have that student that says, but do I have to do a bar model if it doesn't make sense to me? Those are those moments to, to look for something else and to think about trying something new. Yeah, I often think about the start of my career and the biggest mistakes I made were the ones where I didn't listen to my stomach. You know, it's, it's that combination of prior experience and knowledge that, that just gets you right in the pit. And when I haven't listened to it, things have gone badly wrong, you know? And so I'm, I'm totally with you both. It has been an absolute pleasure. And I really hope this isn't the last time that we have a chance to speak in this way and hopefully maybe meet in person one day. Um, but all I have to say is thank you very much for joining me, both of you. Ah, thank you for inviting us. And it's been an honor. It's, it's been wonderful. I was really nervous. I was like, why do people want to listen to me? I've got nothing to say. Clearly I have. <laughs>
and, and that, that's the point of this, you know, and that's why I thought this would be a good thing to have, you know, obviously lockdown made it possible to do things like this really easily, you know, before, you know, we wouldn't have had, I wouldn't have had the nice, but listening to teachers, you know, some of the teachers have been on, have had six years experience, you know, eight years experience, but everyone's experience is equally valid and everyone's experience is helpful to someone who's listening, you know, so, you know, you should never feel that, that you know, what have I got to say? Because then you'll be, like you say, 40 years down the line and still thinking like that. Yeah, absolutely fantastic, guys. And definitely, I don't know, Bert, we've got, I've got some plans for some problem-solving episodes. Maybe if I try and schedule them for like a Sunday morning in America, Sunday afternoon here, you know, because I think the more rounded that conversation is, the, uh, the better it'll be. Maybe we could do some problems together. Yeah, because yeah, we'll, we'll need to have the, the Zoom whiteboard on the go. 